0: Well, even though I am not from around these parts originally, I have fond memories of coming to Oregon every summer as a kid to visit my grandma and my relatives, who we are all from here, and we would always go to the Oregon coast. I remember one summer, I must have been five or six years old, and uh, I decided I wanted to go out on some out onto some rocks there in the ocean. So I remember climbing out on these rocks, and the next thing I remember is I'm under the water, and I can't get up to get a breath. And I began to panic. I survived. Uh, thanks to my mom coming and pulling me out of the waves. Apparently a large wave had come and knocked me off the rock. You know, we all know that we need water to live. But water... Can be a dangerous force as well. Floods, rainstorms, the open sea, or just even a single powerful wave can cause great destruction. We see this duality of water in Scripture. God breathes in the very beginning over the chaos of the primordial waters and brings life. And then He waters the Garden of Eden, with a life-giving river. Later, he judges humanity for her wickedness by sending a flood. Sends waters of judgment. And then hundreds of years later, God's people are saved. As Moses parts the Red Sea, God's people go through the waters, being saved from their enemies, the Egyptians, And then the waters come crashing down over the Egyptians in judgment. Water is both an agent of life and judgment in God's creation. But when God makes all things new, water will only bring life. There will be no possibility to drown in the new creation, there will be no chaos or destruction. It will be as though the results of sin and the curse have been washed away. Well, today we consider the conclusion of John's vision of the heavenly city. Two weeks ago, we focused on the God of this new creation, the husband, the father, the judge. Last week, we focused on the lamb's bride, God's city, the church. Today, we go downtown into the city of God. We, the skyline of the new creation we now see up close. Those Old Testament promises and, and pictures that we saw that seemed like black and white images are now filled in with vibrant color. This morning, we want to meditate on the quality and the purpose of the life to come. So please turn with me to Revelation chapter 22, which is at the very end of your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, they are provided in the pews and the chairs around you. I will read from Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Well, as I mentioned, we want to consider in this passage the quality and the purpose of the life to come in God's presence. That will serve as the basic outline as we walk through this text and consider what God is saying to us this morning. My prayer for us as a congregation is that as we consider this perfect life to come in God's presence, that it would cause our identity to be rooted in Christ alone and who we will be. So first, let's consider the quality of the life that we will have in God's presence forever. This will this is the first point and the longest, longer of the two points. So look again at at verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Well, here we have the same angel who's been leading us through this vision of the heavenly city. And the angel introduces John to two images, which we're going to consider one at a time. So. We're going to first consider the river of life and then the tree of life. When you hear that there's a river of life in the new creation, are you relieved after hearing in chapter 21 that there's going to be no sea? Does it make you feel better thinking, well, at least there will be some mansion properties on the waterfront? Fishing will be available for us. Well, no, John's not seeking to get us excited about heaven by talking about A literal river. Uh, John's using imagery again. He describes this river as having the water of life or living water, which could just mean running water. But in John's gospel, living water is what Jesus offered a Samaritan woman at a well. Maybe you remember this story. It's, It's clear that in John 4... Jesus isn't talking about H2O when he says everyone who drinks of this water, when he's referring to the well, the H2O in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the water of life. This is the water that satisfies Our deepest longings and desires. Further, look back at the beginning of verse one. Consider the source of this river. It's the throne of God and the Lamb. You know, John is clearly alluding here to Ezekiel's vision that we just read earlier in chapter 47 of Ezekiel that flows from the threshold of the temple. The living water here in John's vision flows also from the temple. It's just that now God and the Lamb are the temple. So it flows from Him and His throne. I think what this river of life symbolizes should fill us with great anticipation as Christians. Just as a great river flowed through the Garden of Eden, making the land fertile and rich with precious jewels, this end-time river in the new creation will even be better than that river. King David rejoiced at this day, singing, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. Hundreds of years after David... Zechariah prophesied on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. Prophets and kings of old greatly looked forward to God fulfilling his promise to bring this life-giving river. This river is a beautiful picture and fulfillment of the promise of God to bring life abundant and eternal. Jesus himself said, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus offers us this life-giving water, Not just in heaven, but he offers it to us today. I think non-Christians and Christians alike are all united in a common desire to live an abundant life. A life full of joy and happiness, satisfaction. If you're a non-Christian here today, what do you hope will bring you? satisfaction and happiness. Perhaps is it your family or your career, money, retirement, vacations, hobbies. You know, All these things are good things, but they are not what life is about. Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. You know, when Jesus said this, many of his disciples abandoned him. They left. You know, they had just seen Jesus turn five loaves and two fish into a meal enough for 5,000 people. Their bellies were still full. And then Jesus says this, and they leave. They were even called disciples. They were not ready to feed on Jesus in faith, but instead they were going for what they could see. You know, maybe they were confused. Maybe they didn't really understand what Jesus was saying here. But one thing is clear. They didn't believe. You know, Jesus doesn't come to us today and answer all our questions. I don't even know from looking at this passage here if there's going to be a literal river and a tree in heaven. Jesus doesn't come to us and promise us a happy life today. In fact, he promises us suffering. He promises us that this life will be hard. But true disciples of Jesus recognize that. To whom else should we go? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Are you thirsty this morning for something that will truly satisfy you? Your deepest longings. Can you hear this morning the words of eternal life coming from the one who died and rose again? He conquered death so that he might offer us life. In John 7, Jesus stands up and says in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. What what does Jesus mean by this? Thankfully, scripture tells us, John tells us, By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Perhaps in this heavenly vision here of this river of life, John means to picture the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Because we know it's only through the Spirit that we can know this abundant and eternal life that Jesus speaks of. Do you know who lives life to the full more than anyone in the universe? It's God. God is the happiest being in the universe. He is the definition of love, contentment, joy, all within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazingly, we are invited into relationship with this triune God. All who repent of their sins and believe in the Son, sacrificed on the cross for their sins, receive the Spirit, and then can be called children of the Heavenly Father. It's amazing. We, we, and we see a beautiful picture here of the triune God right here in this passage. You know, the Lamb and God, the Father, are not sharing the throne. They are one. And through the Spirit, God brings life to all who drink. Later in this chapter, John writes, The spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Only those who drink of this water today will drink of it in the heavenly city. Have you begun to drink of this living water? Have you tasted its purity? It's excellence. There's nothing better than the life-giving water that is offered to us this morning. And I'd encourage you to keep listening to God's word and this water that is offered to you this morning. You cannot do better than the quality of this water. The king of life offers you life today. Well, we want to continue considering this quality of life that God offers us. And and John uses the picture of the tree of life to picture abundant and eternal life as well. So look at verse 2 again. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So not only do we see a river rich and with living waters offering abundant life, but we see a tree of life. You know, initially I was confused by this tree of life. How could one tree be on both sides of the river? Well, there's a number of theories going on here on what's going on with this tree, uh, but actually it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to spend time talking about that because the point is not the tree. We need to uh, observe some of the characteristics of this tree to understand what God is saying to us this morning. First, we see that the tree bears 12 different kinds of fruit every month. Again, John is probably not talking about a literal tree with literal fruit bearing fruit January through December. Because if if we consistently take John literally, we know... Already there's no sun, no moon. So the 12-month calendar is in trouble. John instead is just describing a lush and a fruitful existence that knows no harsh winter season of death. But he's describing a garden-like paradise. The end has become like the beginning, but it's even better. You know, God tells us in Genesis 2, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. So in the garden of Eden, man had full access to this tree of life, so there was no death or curse, and enjoying an abundant and eternal life. But we know that Adam and Eve, ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, disobeying God. And so this earth was filled with the curse and evil. Death came and the serpent's throne was established on the earth. All mankind now is separated from the holy and life-giving presence of God. And an angel with a flaming sword guarded that tree of life. Eternal life forever seems out of reach for us. So we have these two bookends in Scripture, bookending all of history. We have this tree of life in the beginning, and then we have this eternal tree of life to come. But how does man regain access to this tree of life eternally when we have disqualified ourselves from the tree of life by our sin and our rebellion against the King? Well, that's where the good news of the gospel comes in, doesn't it? 2,000 years ago, praise God, there was another tree. This tree didn't seem like a tree of life. Instead, it seemed like a tree of death. An innocent, righteous man, Jesus Christ, who is God himself, was crucified on this tree. His death on the tree paid the penalty. For the sins that you and I have done so that we can know eternal life. The Apostle Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The tree of life that brought death to our creator and redeemer, God, brings life to all who look on him now. This healing in John's vision, which is pictured here in the leaves, is a picture of this once and for all healing that is offered at the cross. It's not as though diseased nations will continually come to this tree needing healing because we know in the new creation, according to verse three, there's no more curse, no more disease that needs healing. But there will be a continual and rich protection. God's presence it's also significant that the leaves of healing provide healing for the nations usually in scripture the nations are God's enemies fighting against him in rebellion but here we see that the nations can approach the tree of life and be healed you know as Christians we have tasted in part the healing power of this tree of life we know that at the cross Christ was pierced for our transgressions, and when he was pierced, the blood and the water flow, the blood covering our sin and the water bringing abundant and eternal life. I want to ask us, as a church, are we keeping these leaves to ourselves? Or are we leveraging our short lives to tell our neighbors our family, our friends, and the nations about the healing power of the cross. You know, if you discovered a drug or a formula that would cure AIDS or cancer, you wouldn't just sit on it. You would do everything that you could to get that to as many people as possible. Man's rebellion against God is a much more endemic, And dangerous disease, and even AIDS or cancer. Yet this disease can be healed through the hearing and the believing of the gospel. Who in your life needs to hear the life giving message of the gospel this week? That'd be a great thing to to think about and pray about, to talk over lunch. How will you use your short life so that those who don't know eternal life can hear of the life-giving message of the cross and the free offer of it in the gospel? Another question goes along with it. How are you joining in this, with this church in fulfilling the great commission to bring the gospel to all nations? You know, God gave the Great Commission to local churches. And as we thought about last week, the church is the most powerful, visible picture in this life of what God's love is like in the gospel. Well, in verse 3, John is telling us what the absence of the curse, spiritual and physical death will be no more. It will be absolutely abolished. Notice how John starts using a future tense in verse 3. He does this to heighten our anticipation of what is to come and to exhort us to remain faithful until this great day. For today, the curse is a daily reminder. We lose our temper with our kids. We are not kind to our spouse. Childlessness. Singleness when we want to be married. We fall into temptation. Sickness. Age, anarchy in places like Egypt, Syria, the death of a loved one. I could keep going, but I don't need to because this is our life here filled with heartache and frustration. But this life is only temporary. The life to come won't even have stub toes and hangnails. Christian, let's take hope. That the suffering of this life will soon be over. And we will awake not just to a life that goes on forever. But a life with unending joy. And an abundance of life and happiness. So that is the quality of the life to come. It's an eternal life. It's an abundant life. But what will our purpose be in the new life? What will our purpose be in God's presence forever? What will we do? Well, that's our our second and our final point. We see this in verses 3 through 5. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. We see here in these verses that the purpose of the life to come can be broken down into serving, seeing, and reigning. Serve, see, and reign. So first we want to consider that God's servants will serve him. Is this what you think about when you think about heaven? Do you think angels will periodically come before us and tell us about the need for more children's ministry workers? So that, you know, mom and dad can get on with their... Uh, harp playing and cloud floating and eternal choir practice? Well, we should hope not. <laughs> but what will we do in heaven? Eternity is a long time. Will we get bored? Well, though heaven is described using rich symbolism and imagery as we've considered, our identity and our purpose in heaven will be the same as it is today. We will have new bodies just as we have today. They will just be, uh, they'll just be perfect, free of soreness and sickness, and they'll be beautiful. But John's, John's interest is, goes past our physical appearance in heaven, but he wants to talk about our identity. And we see that at the very beginning of this prophecy in, in Revelation 1.1. John addresses this word of revelation to God's servants. We could even say God's slaves. And John himself identifies himself as a bondservant or a slave of God. That is what a Christian is, both now and forever. A slave, a servant of God. Someone who has given up their own perceived rights to follow and to belong to Jesus. Jesus. If you look down at verse 4, we see that God's servants have God's name on their foreheads. I don't know if we'll literally have God's name on our foreheads, but I think one thing is clear. John is saying that God's servants will belong to him perfectly. We're not self-made men and women. We belong to our creator and to our Lord. And we belong to him so that we might serve him. You know, the word John uses for service can also mean worship. All of us in this room are worshipers. The question is, what or who are you worshiping? What we worship in this life ultimately determines where we will spend the next life. You now, worship can be thought of as everything we think, say, and do revealing which we treasure and value most in this life. So what do you spend most of your time thinking and talking about? That's probably what you worship. Christians are ultimately those who worship God. They treasure him more than anything else. They're willing to sell all that they have for the sake of following him. Does that describe you? If so, you will continue to know the joy Of giving all for the sake of worshiping our king who is worthy of all our praise, all our worship, and all our service. These are challenging questions. What would it mean for you to make worship and service of God more central to your identity? I think one way is by what many of you are already doing. Serving the body of believers here. It is by working for the unity of a local church that Christ purchased with his blood that we serve God. Just as you could show me love by loving and caring for my wife and kids, we show God love by caring for his precious bride. Does worship and service seem like a burden to you, though, especially when you think of it in the life of the church? Something you have to do, maybe in order to earn God's favor so you no longer feel guilty? Something that you strive for in order to be a better Christian? It shouldn't. For a Christian, worship and service is fundamentally a joyful response to God. Today, we worship and serve in faith. We trust that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and he adopts us into his family today based solely on what he has done on the cross. And then we respond in belief, repentance, and following Him. This is worship. There's nothing better than following Jesus. But there's also nothing harder. For much of what we see, hear, and feel calls into question, even sometimes, the reality of this unseen God. We struggle with doubt, we struggle with legalism, we struggle with temptation. A Christian, press on. The day is almost here when our faith will be sight and our worship and service will be more joy filled and natural than ever. God's throne will soon be established on earth. You know the answer to our Lord's and Savior's prayer is soon coming. When Jesus prayed, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Surely God the Father will hear the prayer of his beloved son and answer this in full soon. And God's throne will be established here on earth forever. You know, the joy of God and the Lamb's throne being here in our midst is probably emphasized in what we see here at the beginning of verse 4 the most. This is the second purpose that will characterize our life in the new creation. We will see his face. You know, in ancient times, to see the face of a king indicated that you had an audience with him, entering into the king's presence directly. But to see Yahweh's face presents some problems. You know, God told Moses, one of the most humble men who ever lived, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. We know that this is because man is sinful and God is perfectly holy and just. And to come into his presence, his presence must judge sin because he is good. Praise God for a degree of separation from our holy God. You know, Israel needed to be shielded from God's direct presence through things like sanctuary curtains and the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant. And when people disregarded the rules of approaching God, they were often struck dead. But with the sacrifice of Christ, the temple curtain is torn in two, and we have access into the throne room of God and can approach confidently as priests. Even today, though, access to God is still limited due to the sin that clings to us. To see God today before we are made perfect would be a terrifying prospect until that day when we rise and the sin falls from us like scales and we behold the face of our creator redeemer and Lord we will see his face the face of the king and all his beauty the culmination of the greatest hopes of the Bible And the greatest of all eternity's blessings to see the face of God himself, to belong to him and to behold him in his beauty will be a million times greater than any experience or anything that you have ever seen in this life. If you know God today through faith in Jesus Christ, can you imagine what it will be like to no longer need faith? But to see God no longer veiled, it will be an awesome sight. It's something worth living a hundred lifetimes for just to catch a glimpse of him in his beauty. As Psalm 84 says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Well, the third and final purpose that will characterize life in the new creation is reigning. We see this in the verse in, at, the, at the end of verse 5. You know, we've considered that we will be priest-like in our service of the king, but then we will be king-like in our reigning. In the new creation, Christians will share the throne with God himself. We will reign eternally with him. Just as God gave Adam and Eve dominion over all the creatures of this world in the beginning, so we will be given authority to rule forever. You know, this is is a little bit of a mystery. You know, we're going to be joyful slaves of the king, but then we're also going to be king-like ourselves, sharing the throne with the triune God. Who our subjects will be is not really clear in this passage, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we will judge angels What that. Means, I have no idea. And just as our service will not be a burden in the heavenly city, so the authority that we are given, our reigning, will be nothing but joy and satisfaction. This is due to the absence of the curse. You know, the light of the lamp. Our work will be completely unfrustrated. We will work in heaven, but it will be full of joy and satisfaction. We will be so unified with God That his purpose will be our purpose, to reign. You know, today we use authority that that God has given us often for selfish and destructive purposes. But authority is fundamentally a good gift that God gives. We are to bring creativity, leadership, and stewardship to God's creation today. And we will one day do that perfectly. Not out of selfish motives, but out of a desire to see God's glory fill the entire universe. Well, we should conclude. What will life be like in heaven? Well, the quality of life to come is incapable of exaggeration in its joy and beauty. We will not just know life eternally, but it will be an abundant life where the joys that our first parents knew in the garden will pale in comparison to the joys that we will know. What will we do in heaven? What will our purpose be? Well, we will serve and worship the king as a servant dwelling in his presence, seeing his face and reigning with him forever. Does this future certainty comfort you today? Does it motivate you to persevere through the temptations to compromise? You know, God would have us, his people, Henson Baptist Church, begin to reflect together what we will be forever. So let us consider where our treasure is. Let us consider our service. Let us consider our fundamental identity. Is it in Christ alone? You know, we are broken and imperfect shadows of what we will one day be. But when Christ comes again, the whole universe will be filled with his light. It will be beautiful and brilliant. There will be no need of sun, moon, stars or lamps. His glory will fill the entire earth. And his people will delight in his beauty as they dwell with him forever. Is this your hope? If it is, you can have full confidence that when your eyes close in death to this life, life will have just begun. Will you pray with me? Lord, we praise you as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lord, we praise you as the God who is worthy of all our praise, worship, and service. Lord, we praise you as the King who conquered sin and death and is coming again soon. Lord, we pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would establish your throne here on earth soon. Lord, we ask these things as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.